Welcome once again to our ongoing series titled Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. I'm Mark Van Oos. Glad to be able to share the Word of God, teach the Word of God to you on a very important subject in the Bible and in our Christian life. And this is the fourth in this uh, series, the first part. We uh, had an introduction and kind of laid the groundwork on uh, several different ideas. The second part of this series was perfect sanctification already accomplished. And in that installment, we spend quite a bit of time going over the many scriptures that talk about the our sanctification is Christ himself, 1 Corinthians one thirty, and that the matter of sanctification is based on his perfection and his perfect work already accomplished. In the last part, part three, we talked about living in the reality of perfect sanctification right now. And we address the fact that there are scriptures that uh, speak about sanctification and walking according to our sanctification and how it's frequently confused as so walk to become sanctified when it's actually the exact opposite. We are fully and perfectly sanctified, therefore we walk. And uh, we brought out 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you missed any of those series, I encourage you to... uh, Download them either from our website or through the iTunes store, and uh, it'll be a great catch-up. And even if you have heard those other parts, it might be good for review. What I want to talk about, well, first of all, what we want to do is just do a very quick review on sanctification itself. What does the Bible mean? It is a Bible term. What does the Bible mean when it uses the term sanctification? What it means is set apart. It means that uh, that person or that thing, even that place, is set apart from all else, sort of out of common everyday use. And it's set apart to God alone, for him and for his holy purposes. That's what sanctification means. And even the idea of holiness as applied to us means the same thing. It's this idea of being set apart from all else and made God's own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we find out that we belong to God. It says that we have been bought with a price, with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We belong to God. That's wrapped up in the idea of sanctification. Another part of sanctification is the idea of being dedicated to God. And it's not so much you dedicating yourself as so much God for his purposes, uh, taking that person or that place or that object and dedicating it for his purposes. A very important thing to understand about the subject of sanctification is that it is God himself who sanctifies us. We don't sanctify ourselves. God is the one who sanctifies us. Exodus chapter 31 verse 13 says that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Exodus 31 13. And in Jude 1, It addresses to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Well, today we need to address a very, very important issue related to the success or failure of living in the reality of perfect sanctification. How many today want to live completely enjoying the full benefit of living in the reality of your perfect sanctification? I do. 
But we need to be aware of the dangers that can impede progress, dangers that can get in the way, dangers that can undermine what God truly desires for his children. And today I want to address the extreme danger, and I mean it, extreme danger of thinking that you are bad or a part of you is bad. Now, a little earlier, I know in the first uh, segment of this uh, teaching series, we were talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this uh, standard has been held for many years, hundreds of years, and Westminster is in many points very good and accurate concerning the Word of God. But it is not infallible. And uh, there's a particular part of Westminster uh, that talks about sanctification, and I draw this out only to point out the fact that this has become almost the de facto teaching of the church as far as sanctification. And here's the part we're going to kind of go after today. It's called, this sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh, lusting against the spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Now, beyond Westminster, again, this has become pretty much the de facto teaching of sanctification ever since. And I want to address this issue head on, because if what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying right here about sanctification uh, is true, along with what is commonly taught today on sanctification, then the Christian is continually fighting a losing battle against himself. If it is true, it means that sanctification is imperfect in this life. If it's true, it means that there are remnants of corruption in every part. If it's true, it means that there is a continual and irreconcilable war between the flesh and the spirit. Now, however, if upon examining these claims in the light of Scripture, we find it to be untrue and unbiblical, then friends, This false teaching has been used of the devil to deprive the heirs of salvation the privilege and enjoyment of their full rights as sons of God. It has produced bondage in millions of Christians. It fuels sin. It frustrates the grace of God. It hinders fruitfulness in the Christian life. And it has kept millions of Christians unproductive in the kingdom of God, distracted from the Great Commission, caught up with dealing with their own problems and hang-ups. So see, friend, the stakes are really high here. Is, is this claim that our sanctification is somehow imperfect in this life and that there are remnants of corruption in every part and that there is a continual and irreconcilable war between the flesh and the spirit? If it's true, then that means one thing. And if it's not, my goodness, we have got to set this thing straight. So first of all, we're going to address each of these claims point by point in the light of Scripture. First of all, Westminster alleges that our sanctification in Christ is, quote, imperfect in this life. (laughs) Well, by now in this series, I think you can see that we have pretty much annihilated this false doctrine with a multitude of Scriptures which prove otherwise. To say that our sanctification is in any way imperfect— is to impugn and repudiate the perfection of Christ himself, his perfect and sinless life, his perfect suffering, perfect blood, perfect sacrifice, perfect offering, and perfect death. 
bringing us into a better covenant. And that, my friend, Jesus' perfect life, suffering, blood, sacrifice, offering, and death, bringing us into a better covenant is the subject of Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. You see, the entire book of Hebrews proves our sanctification as well as everything else in our salvation is full, complete, and finished because of the perfection of Jesus Christ and his perfect finished work. Therefore, the Westminster Confession posits an unbiblical statement when it alleges that the perfect sanctification which Christ has given us is somehow in any way imperfect in this life. Point number two, Westminster alleges that, quote, there abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part of a true Christian. In other words, every part of you is still messed up to some degree and always will be until you die or get raptured. Well, we're going to hang on this part for a while because this is a very common um, belief in the church, not only in this age, but in uh, previous generations. And let's just take this thing apart point by point and examine it in the light of Scripture. First of all, corruption in every part. You know, that is how a sinner, and a sinner defined by the Bible as someone who is unsaved and unregenerate, that is how a sinner is. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3b, it says that they, by nature, are children of wrath. You see, the very nature of a sinner incurs the wrath of God. Not just the sins, but the nature, the sinful nature of the sinner itself. I've also heard Christians say that they have a wicked heart. And their proof text is Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, is Jeremiah 17, 9 really applicable to Christians? Do they really have a heart that's deceitful above all things? desperately wicked? Well, let's look at what this truth of Scripture says. God himself promises in the new covenant expression of Ezekiel 36, 26, quote, the Lord is speaking and says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I want to ask you, did God give us those again who are born again in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God because of the Lord Jesus, did God give us a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Certainly not. Hebrews 10.22 says, Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 21 says, We have a pure heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Did God forget that old, deceitful, wicked heart and not give us a new one like he promised in Ezekiel 36? Certainly not. Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let me ask, would Christ dwell in a deceitful and wicked heart? Never. 2 Corinthians one twenty two declares that God has, quote, sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
2 Corinthians 1.22. Now, would God put his Holy Spirit in a deceitful and wicked heart? My friends, once again, you cannot use one verse to create a whole theology on the Christian life. Now, is this idea, uh, corruption in every part, biblical? Is this what the Bible really teaches about what a real, born-again child of God, one who is in Christ and Christ is in them, really is? The Bible teaches that such a person is in Christ and not in Adam. It is true. When we were first born into this life, we were born into Adam. And Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 talks about this. And in Adam, sin abounds, and there is sin, death, and condemnation. That's universal. The whole human race is born in Adam. Romans chapter 3, verses 10b to 11 says, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. However, the condition of a child who is of God who is born again is this, that we have been crucified with Christ. We have died with him and been removed from Adam. It says in uh, And that's found in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, and Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. And in that Romans 6 passage, it talks about the fact that we have been united with Christ, buried with him in baptism, and raised again. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, it says that the death Christ died was uh, to sin, and the life he now lives, he lives to God. It says, therefore, based on that, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that for the child of God, we are born again in Christ. There are 77, count them, 77 in Christ verses that speak about who we really are in Christ. Friend, if you are in Christ, they apply to you. And none of those 77 verses mention anything about corruption in every, any part, let alone every part. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. In fact, the first part of that verse tells us that Christ was made sin so that in him we would be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Read that for yourself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were reading a little bit earlier about being objects or or children of wrath. That's the condition in Adam. And then it says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his love, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in trespasses and sins, made us alive. And then it goes on talking about the grace of God and what it has given to us. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now let me ask you, has God messed up his workmanship? 
Shall we accuse Almighty God of shoddy workmanship, making cheap, defective goods? As I mentioned a little bit earlier, Romans 6.11 says that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 1 Peter 1, 23. Let's take a look at uh, and, and give a better focus to what's in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is so significant. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 in the Old Testament, and as you're traveling there, you know, Ezekiel is really, as you read through it, quite a striking contrast. There is plenty of space devoted in that passage of Scripture about the judgments of God against an incredibly idolatrous, sinful, and undeserving people. And yet in the midst of all that is the promise of the new covenant. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 36, it's also mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, but Turn Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, and let's read this together. God is saying, he is promising, not just a, yeah, well, I'll do it, as we tend to do. No, no, no. God is doing it with a covenant. Now, first of all, let me say this. God doesn't have to make a covenant with anybody. He doesn't have to say, I promise I'll do it. God is true. He is not a man that he should lie. And so when he says something is so, it is so. And when he says it's not so, it's not. And yet God, in Hebrews chapter 6, brings this out, does make a promise, does swear an oath, does make a covenant. Why? Not for his own benefit, but for our benefit. We're so weak. We have trouble believing. So God is being so emphatic when he makes a new covenant, even a blood covenant. It should cause us to sit up and take notice. And embedded in the New Covenant language of Ezekiel chapter 36 is this beautiful verse. Verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, let me ask, is that new heart given to us by God corrupt in any way? No. There was an old stony dead heart that existed in Adam, but we have been given a new, living, vibrant heart that responds to God. May I ask, is that new spirit that God has put in us corrupt in any way? No. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says of Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I think few people Few Bible-believing Christians would doubt the integrity and the theological correctness of that statement. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But watch this, verse 10, based on verse 9, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Hallelujah. I'm complete. You're complete. Why? Because he's complete. And the complete fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, and I am in him, and he is in me. I am complete. Check it out for yourself in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. My friend, this teaching that is so common today that we have a wicked heart and that somehow there is corruption in every part has to be one of the most damaging false doctrines on the planet. This is... This is a prime example of carnal, 
fleshly theology, where we create our theology that contradicts what the Bible clearly teaches, and it's based on the flesh. It's based on human experience, human wisdom, and human philosophy. James 3.15 says of such wisdom, and I put that in quotes, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. This false, earthly, sensual, and demonic doctrine that there abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part has so infected the thinking of the church today, it has kept millions of Christians in bondage. The devil thrills at such a dark doctrine. It has given millions of Christians excuses to continue sinning. This doctrine does not breed righteous living, but sinful living and bondage. So we have held up the second claim that there abideth still corruption in every part, and that claim has been annihilated by the Word of God. Now we go to the third claim in Westminster that is so common in our thinking and teaching today. Westminster claims, quote, "...whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh." First of all, let's talk about meanings of the words. It says there ariseth a continual. What does continual mean? The the dictionary tells us a regular or frequent occurrence happening without interruption or cessation, continuous in time. It says irreconcilable. The dictionary says that means incapable of being made to acquiesce or compromise, implacably opposed irreconcilable enemies. And then it says war. Well, we all know what war means, not just a battle or conflict or a disagreement, but an all-out war. So the teaching of Westminster is there is this continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. What is meant by flesh? It's the Greek word sarks. We've talked about this before. That simply refers to your humanity, your human perception, human understanding, and human ability. The Spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very simple kill of this lie, and here's the way we're going to do it, okay? We're going to have a heavyweight contest, a bout, a battle, a fight, a wrestling match, and over in this corner, ladies and gentlemen, is my flesh. Yes, it's incredibly short-sighted perception. Yes, it's my ridiculous lim- ridiculously limited understanding. Yes, it's my puny ability. And over in this corner, we have the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, whose creative power created all of the creation who raised Jesus from the dead, raising him and seating him far above all principality and power at the right hand of God the Father. Yes, the Holy Spirit who gives us incredible wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment to fully know God and the things of God. Gee, I wonder who's going to win this contest. Well, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it looks like my flesh is so strong, so powerful, so mighty that the contest will never end in this life. Is that true, ladies and gentlemen? Not. No way. That's crazy talk. Hey, what scriptural proof 
please. Does Westminster offer to prove that there is some sort of continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh? What scriptural proof do they offer? Two verses. Here they are. Galatians 5.17 says this, For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Galatians 5.17. Note, first of all, no mention of a war here. Secondly, ladies and gentlemen, please remember that a text without context is pretext. What is the context of Galatians 5.17? Well, let's read verse 16. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me say it again. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's verse 16. The verse after it, verse 18, says this, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We are sons of God. We are sons of God. Therefore, we are led by the Spirit of God. Back to Galatians 5.17. It speaks of the lust of the Spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. What does the word lust mean here? It literally means a strong desire. Okay, so what it's saying is there's a strong desire that the Spirit has against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. Now, some people might pull out 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 11, that says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, and this is the second verse that they offer, by the way, as a proof, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Aha, someone would say, there it is, Mark, there's the war. 1 Peter 2, 11. Well, again, let's turn to 1 Peter, and I want you to do this. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. As you're heading there, oh, we just can't say it enough. A, a, a text without context is pretext. We never, ever take verses out of context. And it's so easy for us to be misled when we view a scripture outside of its context. Well, what is the larger context of 1 Peter chapter 2? Well, let's go back. There's so much where he talks about the uh, people of God in such a beautiful way. It talks about us being newborn babes at the beginning of verse 2, that we are a chosen people. It says that we're a holy priesthood. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? It says that... um, We're a royal priesthood, chosen people, verse 9, holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, let's go back, if you will, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this. This is very powerful. And um, let's start in verse 3. Are you there? 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he, God, 
because of his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, a new birth. Verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. All right, so we have an inheritance. It's kept, it's preserved in heaven for us. Now, I just want to stop for a minute. Why do we put that leftover dinner into the refrigerator? We keep it in there to keep it, to preserve it, right? And uh, if we're thrifty, we'll pull it out again, maybe a day or two later, reheat it and use it again. But you and I both know what happens when we keep something in the refrigerator too long. Things start to grow in it. Aha, what's the lab culture here in this back dark corner of my refrigerator? (laughs) So you see, a refrigerator, it keeps us, it keeps our stuff, but it doesn't keep it indefinitely. Oh, but, 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 but look what the scripture says about us. It says that we have an inheritance that doesn't perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power, that speaks of God's ability, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what keeps us? What preserves us? God's power. Faith in God's power. Not in my ability, but God's power. Oh, my friend, this is, uh, this is rich stuff. So for us to, to uh, go to a second Corinth, or rather Second Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter two, verse 11, ignoring this context, this incredible context, is to do a great disservice to everything that has been said before verse 11, where he makes the urging to abstain from sinful desires. Does a Christian have sinful desires? They do. And we'll talk about why a little bit later. But it isn't a war. You don't have an internal war that's going on. The war or the issue is actually external. I'm running a little bit ahead of myself, but see, friends, again, you can see where Westminster says that there is this continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh It's just plain garbage. It's not scriptural. It's yet another example of human wisdom, carnal theology that is earthly, sensual, and demonic. I I realize I'm very emphatic here, but my friend, I can't begin to emphasize how important it is that we line up with what the Word of God says. I mean, just in general, that's important, but certainly it's important for us to understand what God has done for us in us, through us, being born again, made new creatures in Christ. You see, it's hard enough having Satan whispering in our our ears these lies that say, oh, you're just a miserable, wretched, loser, failure, sinner. That's not true. We are in Christ. Christ is not a failure. And it's so important to understand who we really are. Schofield has a very good note in their um, series of notes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. And it says this, The righteous man under law became righteous by doing righteously. Now let me point out, and Schofield would also say this as well, nobody could pull it off. Nobody could pull off perfect obedience from the heart all the time by the law. So that righteous man under the law, by doing righteously, there's only one man who did that, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And like everything else, 
Our Christian life, our standing with God is based upon him. Now, listen to the second part of this. Under grace, he does righteously, a righteous man, does righteously because he has been made righteous. Let me say that again. Under grace, he does righteously because he has been made righteous. You see, if you understand that you're righteous, you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ, you will, your faith will soar. Your faith walk in the Lord Jesus Christ and his ability to walk out holiness through you will find great success. But if you believe that you're not righteous, if you believe that you're a sinner, if you believe that you are somehow yucky, you're you're going to have a really hard time walking the Christian life. Satan's going to have all sorts of grab holds on you. Well, I'm going to conclude today's uh, lesson by talking about what I call the myth of the Christian sinner. And as I've been going along, you've been hearing me make the statement, uh, more or less directly, that a Christian is not a sinner. The Bible, when it uses the word sinner, and that is a Bible word, only applies it to a person who is unsaved, one who is in Adam, one who is not in Christ. Now, I'm going to let you know that I've written much more extensively about this. Today's treatment will be short, but I think it'll get right to the point. You see, I am surprised by the number of Christians, and I did this for many years, who refer to themselves as sinners. Well, folks, guess what? God, not once in all of the Scripture, refers to Christians one in Christ, as a sinner. You won't find it. You will not find one single verse. Oh, I know what you're saying. Somebody is saying, now, wait a minute, Mark. What about over there in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1? Let's see. I think it's uh, verse 15 that says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Again, this is a case where people have built an entire theology that Christians are called sinners by God based on just one verse. Now, let's look at this verse. Is that what that verse really means in context? Is Paul calling himself a sinner and a chief of sinners? No. The verses leading up to this refer to the way he was when he was not in Christ. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out upon me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In other words, In the hall of shame of sinners, Paul was saying, my name is up at the top of the list. And what Paul was trying to say here is, look, I was the worst of the worst, and if he could save me, he could save you. And that makes sense. If you read verse 16, it says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul was not calling himself in the present tense a sinner, and certainly not the worst of sinners and not the chief of sinners. 
Verses later, Paul goes through the qualifications of those in leadership in the church. And based on those leadership qualifications, Paul would have failed if he was indeed the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. So clearly, you cannot take 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and create a silly doctrine, and it is silly, and it's poisonous, and it's dangerous and harmful, that God calls Christian sinners. So get off it. Don't call yourself a sinner. Not once in all the Scripture is a Christian, one in Christ, called a sinner. Now, I have a challenge for you. I have, for the past many years, had a $100 reward. And I will pay $100 to the first person who will find in the Scripture clear evidence that a Christian is called a sinner. Good luck. You won't find it. I haven't lost my $100 yet, and I'm not planning on losing it. You see, my friend, what happens when we believe that we are a sinner? Those of us who are born again through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, we are not in Adam, we are in Christ. What happens when a Christian believes they are a sinner? Well, they believe that their identification, I I believe, if I believe that of myself, I believe my identification is with me, my failure, and my sin. If I believe that I am a sinner, it breeds a sin consciousness. Let me just say say this. I was sharing this with a brother, and he made the point, and I think this would be a common fallacy or, or thought that people would have. He says, well, we call someone a fisherman because they fish. Well, that's true. But you see, the issue isn't an analogy with real life. The issue is, what does the Scripture teach? You go to Romans chapter 5, and it clearly points out two sort of divisions of humanity— those in Christ, and those in Adam. It says that in many, in Christ, many were made sinners, and uh, through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous, Romans 5, 19. It is so important that we understand this beautiful, gracious work. Now, What happens when I identify with who I really am, being in Christ or a Christian? My identity is not my sin. My identity is Christ. My identity is his success. My identity is his righteousness. And this breeds a righteousness consciousness. You see, uh, those who hold to a sin consciousness are either ignorant of the finished work of Jesus or they believe that that finished work is somehow not enough. They engage in an old covenant mindset, repeated imperfect sacrifices and works of man, Hebrews 10, 1 to 4, versus a new covenant mindset, which is based upon Jesus' perfect life, perfect blood, perfect sacrifice, and perfect death, means that we are made clean once and for all, Hebrews 10, 5 through 18. The new covenant mindset, which is Christ-centered and Christ-based, says Jesus did it, and it's more than enough. You see, a Christian, a person is not a sinner because of the bad things they do, sin. A Christian is a sinner in the eyes of God because they have been born in Adam, read it for yourself, Romans 5, 12 to 21. They are born sinners. Sinners are sinners not because they do sin, but because they are born sinners. 
a person is a saint not because of the good things that they do, but because they have been born again in Christ Jesus. And by the way, the word saint in the Bible, and again, that's a Bible word, is the beautiful Greek word hagios, which means most holy thing or one. See, it gets back to this whole thing about sanctification. Do you believe that somehow your sanctification is imperfect and there's all this stuff you got to do to get it perfected? Well, that's wrong. Because our true biblical sanctification, the reality of our sanctification, the root and the substance of our sanctification is not you, it's God. And what's going on in his mind? And the fact that he calls some holy and some unholy. For those who are in Christ, they are sanctified. And so this is a case, my dear friend, no matter how you feel, no matter how you struggle, you will not meet with any success in your Christian life until you buckle down and throw out that stinking thinking that contradicts the Bible. Oh, it might seem like it's right, but, you know, that's what happened to Adam and Eve, right? They seem to think that that fruit that the devil was offering them would make them wise. See, we can be easily beguiled. That's why we hold to what the Word says, and we say, let God be true and every man a liar. Dear friend, rejoice. Rejoice. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's pray. Oh, God, these truths are so wonderful and so rich and so deep, and Lord, they reveal your heart. Oh, your heart of holiness, Lord, your heart of love, your heart of righteousness, your heart of goodness. Lord, there is none righteous apart from you. There is none good apart from you. There is none holy apart from you. But Lord God, you are our perfect sanctification. You are our perfect holiness. And Lord, I pray that you would, by the action of your Holy Spirit, would grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That we, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, may be able to know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us, What is the riches of your inheritance in the saints? And what is the hope of the the gospel to which you have called us? Lord, just thank you that this is so good. It is so powerful. Thank you for your word, God, that clearly pierces the darkness and the fog of confusion and brings through a crystalline, clear, blazing light of your glory. Oh, Lord, these things gladden our hearts. These things draw us nigh unto you. Lord, we realize that Jesus did it all, and all we need to do is just as little children come boldly before your throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Thank you, Lord. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.